If you join me, Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's Jesus. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. This is their final conversation. Parting words, so to speak. And in the midst of the exchange, there's two prominent ideas that come to the forefront. First, there's the Holy Spirit which seems to be the subject of emphasis of Jesus. It's what he's interested in talking about, and we discussed that aspect of this passage in great detail last Sunday. But in the middle of Jesus' teaching, this exchange about the Holy Spirit, a question, a question gets hurled from left field by the disciples. Out of nowhere, in the midst of Jesus talking about the blessed promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the disciples jump in by asking Jesus about the kingdom of God. It seems strange. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I can, I can sense their excitement, their intrigue. And then he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put and his own authority. Now, some Bible scholars are very critical that the disciples not only interrupt Jesus as he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but that they would ask a question concerning the kingdom. You see, all throughout Jesus's ministry, these guys, the remaining 11 apostles, they are obsessed with the kingdom over and over and over again. Their intrigue is Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem. The kingdom's going to get established. They are constantly interested in the kingdom over and over and over. Every opportunity they had, they asked Jesus about the kingdom and then kind of throw in like, yeah, what's my position going to be? Can I be on the right? Can I be on the left? You know, what kind of, uh, you know, they were interested in Jesus being king and them being lieutenants. That was their heart behind it. And over and over and over again, in response to this question about the kingdom, Jesus would rebuke them. He would shut it down. So now, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's going to ascend to heaven to be with the Father. He's got his disciples. It's their final conversation. And the last question these guys ask is a retread. Will the kingdom come now? I mean, shouldn't they have known better? I mean, this is uh, the, the cause for people to be critical. I mean, come on, guys. Shouldn't you have known of all the things to ask? This is the question? But you know what? I think it's inappropriate to be critical of these guys. You know, I actually view this entire question in a totally different perspective. 
You know, we mentioned last Sunday that Luke, he provides us some information of what Jesus is doing over the 40 days between his resurrection and the ascension. Not only is he playing this game of gotcha with the disciples, appearing and disappearing, popping in, popping out, all over the place from Galilee to Jerusalem, but we're told that he spent his time opening up the scriptures and teaching them things concerning what? Well, Luke tells us in Mark, in, uh, here in Acts, he says he spoke to them of things pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. Though these men, and they're knuckleheads in so many ways, but though these guys all throughout Jesus's ministry would ask the question of the kingdom over and over and over again, what makes this occasion different is for the first time, they're asking in response to what Jesus had been teaching them. Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom. And so now they have a moment and they ask a follow-up. It's relevant, it's appropriate. You know, I also see quite a bit of spiritual and scriptural intuition behind this question. At this point in history, the disciples knew that Jesus had instituted what was called the new covenant. They were also keenly aware that the Old Testament taught that as part of the new covenant would be the restoration of a physical kingdom to Israel. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, as part of the new covenant, would be a physical kingdom being restored to the people of Israel. This means that after Jesus is talking about the kingdom, and they're thinking it through, all the aspects of the new covenant, now we've got the coming of the Holy Spirit, they're putting it together, their logical question would be, okay, the new covenant's been established, things are rocking, things are rolling, and we know as part of that, as part of the kingdom of God, would be a physical kingdom. So it seems relevant. Now, Warren Wearsby, he says that being loyal Jews, these disciples longed for the defeat of their enemies. They longed for the final establishment of the glorious kingdom under the rule of the Messiah. They just didn't realize that there must first be a spiritual change in the heart of the people. You know, it should also be pointed out that Jesus responds to the question of the kingdom in a way he's never responded to before. Now, he doesn't answer them, but he doesn't rebuke them either. There's no sharpness to Jesus' tone or the words that he used. He doesn't throw up his hands in disgust of all the things, guys. No, he just tells them, it's not for you to know. And in his response, I see a couple interesting things that should be noted about the kingdom of God. Though aspects of the kingdom have clearly been instituted, Jesus' response to his disciples here indicates that there were other aspects of the kingdom that wouldn't find their ultimate fulfillment until a later future date. Look, Jesus told them, two things would be coming as part of the new covenant. He says to go to Jerusalem and what? Wait for the Holy Spirit. That's part of it. It hadn't unfolded yet. Secondly, he says it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. This phrase, time and seasons, is fascinating. The word times is the Greek word chronos, literally chronology. And then the word season is the Greek word keros, which means a fixed or definitive time. Times, kind of a chronology. 
seasons is a specific time, which means that the phrase, it implies that there is a chronology to the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom with each aspect of the Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom having a predetermined time frame appointed by God to be completed. So first, the kingdom's gonna roll out, not all at once, that there are aspects of the kingdom that would be coming as God had appointed times and seasons for them. Obviously, seven days later, the first one would roll out because the Holy Spirit would come on Pentecost. The second aspect, the kingdom being restored to Israel, well, that's still yet a future day, but it fits within God's framework of there being times and seasons to the fulfillment of prophecy. The second thing that jumps out to me, kind of as, a, as an, not necessarily an application, but just an interesting idea that I think we can draw from what Jesus is saying, is that Jesus, he tells them, hey, will the kingdom be now restored to Israel? And he says, guys, it's not for you to know. But know what Jesus doesn't tell them, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that the kingdom wouldn't be restored to Israel. If God was done with Israel, well, his response would have been like, listen, forget about them. Doesn't matter anymore. Israel, gone. It's the church. And yet, he says, in regards to the kingdom being restored to Israel, well, hey, we can't discuss that right now. It's not for you to know. But he doesn't deny that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. And I find that interesting because there are what's known as dispensationalists within Christianity who claim that following the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, that God kind of wiped his hands with Israel. Well, you had been my people, but then you killed my son. So forget you, sucker. And then he turned his attention to the church. Kind of as though God was dealing with Israel, dealing with Israel, dealing with Israel. They rejected Jesus. The Gentiles accepted Jesus. The nation rejected Jesus. The church embraced Jesus. And so God's like, you're not my peeps anymore. The church is. And I'm done with Israel. There's a whole movement, a popular movement today within Christianity that goes so far as to claim right now we're living in what's referred to as the kingdom age that there is no future establishment of a kingdom to Israel. Now the problem, the problem is that contrary to the core assumption that the church replaces Israel as the people of God and thus the future prophecies concerning Israel now apply to the church, through his silence to their question, Jesus seems to indicate that God still has a plan for Israel for restoring a kingdom to Israel. We live in today what is called the times of the Gentiles. We speak of it as the church age, but there will come a day where the age of the church will come to a completion and God will turn his attention back to Israel, of which he'll restore a kingdom. Times and seasons, but not for you to know when. Now this is not to say that there aren't certain aspects of the kingdom that have been established that don't carry with them incredible social implications. The fact that there is not a physical kingdom, but that Jesus instituted first a spiritual kingdom, it has a profound impact on society. Not to mention, I don't think it's accidental. 
that in response to their question about a physical kingdom, what does Jesus do? He responds by discussing the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Look at it again. When will the kingdom, will the kingdom come now? Jesus is not for you to know, but go to Jerusalem and wait for what? The power of the Holy Spirit. These men were interested in a physical kingdom, but Jesus told them to go and wait for what? A spiritual one, a transformation of the hearts of people. You know, it's true that regardless of political persuasion, some version of morality is always the aim of human government. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you happen to, to sit on, every aim of human government is morality in some way. Every culture defines their own moral ideals only to then impose those ideals upon the rest of society through what? The establishment of law. It is what we will call a outside-in approach to morality. Every government has an outside-in approach to morality. We set our moral ideals, then we enforce them through law. This explains why competing factions within culture, what do they do? They will blame their perceived issues with society on the injustices they believe exist in the law as presently constituted. That's why we see, even today in America, copious amounts of time and energy and money invested by factions with the intention of doing what? Changing law. Why? So that society can be more moral or more just. You know, over the years, the religious right has been accused by the progressive left of trying to use the power of law to impose, to force morality, our moral ideals on the masses. I'll give you an example of it. Between 1920 and 1933, Protestants successfully passed the 18th Amendment and then later the Volstead Act, establishing a nationwide ban on the sale, production, importation, and transportation of alcohol prohibition. In his famous booze sermon, one of the most powerful voices in favor of prohibition, an evangelist ex-baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday, he said this. He said, the saloon is the sum of all villainies. It is worse than war or pestilence. It is the crime of crimes. It is the parent of crimes and the mother of sins. It is the appalling source of misery and crime in the land. And to license such an incarnate fiend of hell is the dirtiest, low-down, damnable business on top of this old earth. There is nothing to be compared with it. I don't know if you ever ran into child sex slavery or anything like that, but apparently the saloon is the worst, most damnable business on the face of the earth. Protestants had a belief on alcohol, and imposed it on America. Now, it's interesting. Prohibition. It lasts 13 years. It lasts until the ratification of the 22nd Amendment that would abolish this prohibition. The Volstead Act would, would be rendered uh, toothless, powerless. But note, though during prohibition, alcohol sales decreased, it was illegal. 
there were unintended consequences to prohibition. The modern American mafia as a result. You see, what's fascinating is that in just seven years following the passage of the 22nd Amendment, alcohol sales eclipsed what had existed pre-prohibition. It took seven years for alcohol sales to eclipse what it had been beforehand. And this is, this is what's interesting. Prohibition, it might have outlawed alcohol, but it failed to change what? The heart of people in regards to alcohol. People who wanted it, they made it in their bathtubs. They drank all kinds of stuff. I mean, really, one of the lasting things we have from this particular movement is a really good show called Boardwalk Empire. Now, in order to be an equal quality offender, I like offending everyone. And I just picked on the right, I mean the church, found it real good. We imposed our will through law on the masses. And the left accuses the right of this crime. Ironically, in accusing the right of the same crime, they're actually guilty of the exact same crime. You see, progressives, all of their lobbies, from pro-choice to gay marriage to environmentalism to healthcare to entitlements, every one of them are lobbied, how so? Under the guise of creating and producing a more moral and just society. Christians use law to create what we think to be a more moral and just society through law, and progressives do the same thing. It's just a different version of what we think is moral and just. But both sides are guilty of the same thing. Both sides, all government, all law, uses, tries to impact humanity from the outside in. As a matter of fact, it's the template of the Old Testament. It really is. The Old Testament presented the same approach to morality, and yet, even when God gave the people a perfect law, we blame our problems with the law, but when God gave a perfect law, what happened? The people still rebelled. They still revolted. Society still, even with perfect law, descended into immorality. See, this is what makes Jesus' approach to the disciples' question. Well, at this time, you institute a physical kingdom only to respond, go and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what makes this radical. In reaction to their question about a kingdom, a physical kingdom, Jesus' only response is that they wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon each of their individual lives. You see, Jesus knew that morality whether it be personally or socially, is unachievable in the way things had always been done. The outside-in approach by using law to curtail behavior. Jesus knew that the key, it would be an inside-out approach to morality. Jesus knew, and it's so true today, that the only way to change society was by first affecting change in the people who made up that society. But he also knew the only way to affect real change in people 
would be through an inner transformation that could only be brought by the power of the Holy Spirit. Something that occurred inside of a man's heart that then manifested itself outward as opposed to a forced moral norm through law. Tragically, we have forgotten that the answer to society's ailments is not more law. It is not more legislation. The remedy for our culture, our society, it's lives being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not to say that we should live in a lawless society. I'm not preaching anarchy here. But as the church, we should know that we most effectively impact the culture around us when we place our time and our energies and our focus and our money and our resources on seeing individual lives transformed by the power of God, not lobbying some political party. The solution to our culture is not for there to be more of the grand old party, but to see more citizens of the kingdom of God. And that will transform America. You know, when we lose sight of this, there are unintended consequences. I I mentioned one in regards to prohibition. Let me mention another. There was, in the early 90s when I was a tyke, another war that the religious right had on culture. The problem with this culture was rap music. That's what it was. That, was. that was what was ailing humanity. If we could just get rid of rap music, it'd be an entirely different landscape. If we got rid of rap music, kids would eat dinner with their parents. Voluntarily, we would end up giving more in taxes because of rap music, corrupted things. Those rappers. In a speech given in September of 1992, former Vice President Dan Quell. He broadened his attack on rap music by calling on Interscope Records to withdraw the album Tupacalypse Now by rapper Tupac Shakur. You see, Quell charged that this record, that these songs were responsible for the death of a Texas state trooper who was tragically shot to death by a suspect who was at the time allegedly in a stolen truck listening to Tupacalypse Now. Tupacalypse Now is why that young man shot a police officer. Quayle said, once again, we are faced... I don't know why I'm doing this. I feel like a politician. (laughs) Once again, we are faced with an irresponsible corporate act. There is absolutely no reason for a record like this to be published by a responsible corporation. He added, today I'm suggesting that Time Warner and their subsidiary subsidiary Interscope Records withdraw this record. It has no place in our society. Now, I did some research. I don't know why this fascinated me. But do you know that you can find zip, zero, nada, no sales records receipts, how the album was trending before the vice president made these comments. You see, the album had been released in the fall of 1991, a year before Vice President Dan Quell made these comments. 
and there are no sales records. It's off the radar. Not a single person, but maybe the guy that shot the police officer, had the album Tupacalypse Now. Not a soul knew who Tupac Shakur even was. He was a no one. But today, the album has sold more than 900,000 units, was recently ranked by Billboard as the number 13 hip-hop album of all time, and I believe the case can be made that Tupac's greatest marketer was Vice President Dan Quayle. <laughs> Today, let me ask, the only death that came from the war on rap music, the only death was the political career of Dan Quayle. Because rap music is as vulgar and vile and strong as ever. Do we lobby to get rid of rap music or do we spend our time trying to see young kids give their lives to Jesus? Where's our focus? Is the success outside in? We've never seen it happen that way. Or is it by focusing on the inside, knowing that when the heart changes, the actions change and society transforms? Now, verse nine, when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now the scene, let's set the scene. Jesus is finishing up this dialogue, this sermon, so to speak. And while they watched, he was taken up. The phrase here literally means to lift up. Jesus wrapping it up. Amen, amen, amen. And he begins to levitate. And it continues that he literally started just rising up into the sky. And then what happened? We're told that they all kept looking even after a cloud had received him out of their sight. They're like, never seen that before. I mean, we've been hanging out with this guy for like three and a half years, and he's never pulled that trick. The levitation trick. I wonder if that comes with being an apostle. That would be awesome, by the way. Jesus ascends up to heaven. They're watching. They can't even see Jesus anymore, but they're like, where'd he go? You know what I mean? They're just, it's an unbelievable experience. Now, the Greek word indicates that this was not a normal cloud. That it wasn't just a puffy white sucker up there. But there was something unique about it, really for two reasons. First, I don't know about you, but clouds don't normally receive people. Like the word here that the cloud received him. The word receive, it literally means to welcome him. I don't know how many clouds that you get up to. It's like, yo, I'm a big puffy cloud. How's it hanging? Let's roll. Like most of the time you get to a cloud and you go through it out the other side. So this is abnormal because the cloud kind of handshakes Jesus and receives him. Weird. Also, the word we find here, cloud, everywhere else you see it in scripture, it's always in conjuncture with the presence of God. And Mark chapter 9, 
Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain. And what happened? Jesus is transfigured before them, but they had been surrounded, encompassed with a what? A cloud. And from the cloud, also another weird aspect of the cloud, it spoke to them. They said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I add shut up. And then he says, hear him, right? Come on, guys. Like the cloud receives people, speaks to people, overshadows people. Every time you find it, it's, it's always indicative of the presence of God the Father coming down. In the Old Testament, you find examples over and over and over again. And connecting the cloud, God's presence, and what was called the Shekinah glory of God. When Moses, the children of Israel, were in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, God descended on top of the mountain. We're told it was in a cloud. And Moses goes up into the cloud, receives the law of God, that there's thunderings and lightnings, all kinds of crazy stuff. The presence of God was on the mountain. Don't mess with it. If you touch it, you're going to die. Both times we see the consecration of the house, the residence of God, first with the tabernacle and then the temple. Both times a cloud would descend from heaven and fill the Holy of Holies, a, a visual example of the presence of God. The scene. It's apparently so radical, so amazing, that they're all just looking up, starry-eyed, gazed. They just don't know what to do. Jesus is out of their line of sight, and they're still checking it out. <laughs> it actually took two angels appearing to them to kind of snap them out of the gaze. Like The idea is that you don't, they didn't even know the angels were there until they spoke to them. So they're looking up in the heaven and these angels, pow, they appear and the guys are just like, could care less that there's angels here and they're just like still chilling and I can see the two angels like, they don't even know we're here. Like flapping their wings a little bit, adjusting their halos like, yo, ta-da. And what do they say? They said, hey, he's gone. He went bye-bye. Why don't you go ahead and scoop back to Jerusalem? I love how David Guzik responds or, or what he says to their question. They say, why are you standing there gazing into heaven? My response would be like, because Jesus just levitated and took off, dude. You don't see that every day. That's why we're standing here. Guzik observes that the two angels were telling them in this question to put their attention back onto the right place. Obedience to Jesus' command to return to Jerusalem not in wondering where and how Jesus went. So the scene. Let's unpack the text. Have you ever kind of thought, why would Jesus leave in such a dramatic way? I mean, Jesus was really not about show. He was not about flash, glitz, and glam. And yet this is pretty dramatic. Like they're together, Bible studies happening, and Jesus pulls out all the stops. He starts wowing things. Like he levitates into heaven. Like why leave in such a dramatic way? Why ascend? When Jesus could have obviously just kind of like wiggled his nose and disappeared, right? And boom, he's in heaven. That was a reference for the, the older folks. And anyway, I think there's a couple reasons. First, Jesus wanted them to know that he was leaving. Don't forget, over the last 40 days, Jesus, the disciples, the norm was him appearing and then disappearing and then appearing and disappearing. If Jesus had simply just vanished to heaven, 
then how would they have known he really departed? Jesus wanted this to be dramatic. So they knew he's gone. Like we, we're, we're not going to be anticipating him pop, pop, like popping back into the room when we're unaware of it. So the first reason is that he, he wanted them to know he was leaving. And there's a reason why, an important reason why he wanted them to know he was gone. John 16, verse 7, he tells them that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, what will happen? I will send him to you. After seeing Jesus ascend to heaven with their own eyes, they could now be confident, A, Jesus had departed, but now they could effectively turn their anticipation to what? to the coming of the Holy Spirit, the helper. The second reason I think Jesus ascended in kind of a dramatic way is that he wanted them to know that he had been accepted by his Father. This idea of the cloud receiving Jesus, it was a symbolic way, maybe even a very literal way, of telling his disciples that God had found him pleasing. God in the cloud had received Jesus. And that's significant. You know, Jesus began his earthly ministry there at the, the banks of the Jordan River. And God the Father declared from heaven what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And though on the cross, when he bore the sins for humanity, Jesus had been forsaken by the Father who had found so much pleasure in him. This cloud now receiving him back into heaven it served to indicate, to communicate that God once again found Jesus pleasing. They could be certain that he had completed his mission. The third reason I think that he left in such a dramatic way is that he wanted to assure them that he would be returning. These two angels who appeared to the disciples, they provide here not just the instruction to be obedient to Jesus, to go back to Jerusalem, but an incredible prophecy that possessed an amazing, awesome assurance. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Though Jesus had left earth, scripture is clear that he would come again in like manner. This tells us that there will come a day that the same Jesus will physically and visibly return to the Mount of Olives. No matter how bad things would get on earth, these men going back to Jerusalem had an assurance that God, that Jesus was not done with humanity. Jesus might have ascended, but he promised to return, which meant no matter how dark and bleak things became, he's coming back. There's an assurance, a guarantee, a promise. Now, I want to take a moment and kind of unpack here or, or pull back a layer to discover the meaning of the ascension. Like, what are the social implications for what just took place? <laughs> Believe what you may, but Jesus is coming back. And his second coming, the next time he descends and steps onto the Mount of Olives, it will be much different than the first. The Savior, 
The man who ascended a savior will return a warrior. The servant will return a king. The lamb of God will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The great intercessor will return as a holy judge. Regardless of what our society might think, the application, the implication, get your affairs in order for Jesus will come back. What is God saying to our church through the ascension? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul, he calls us as the church that we are ambassadors for Christ. In a very literal way, we are presently representing our king. We are representing a greater kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. Paul continues by saying that as ambassadors, God is making his appeal to the world through us. And what's the appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ to what? Be reconciled to God. That's our job as ambassadors, to be in the world, letting the world know to be reconciled with God. See, Jesus is returning. And because we know why he'll return, our job as ambassadors, as the church, is to let the world know that there is a day of reckoning coming. Whether it's when Jesus actually returns or whether when you breathe your last and stand before the throne, a day of reckoning is coming for all mankind. And our job as ambassadors is to plead with people to avoid Judgment through reconciliation. To surrender to Jesus and to be reconciled with God. See, the brutal reality is that the coming king will present only one of two options for humanity. Advanced surrender or assured destruction. And the personal application. Well, do you know that Jesus, he ascended, why did he, he ascended to heaven so that he could prepare a place for you. John chapter 14, let me read it for you. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare this place, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will also be. Jesus, he left us with a job. We represent him in the kingdom. And he's busy first doing what? Preparing a home for you, for all eternity. That's awesome. But secondly, Jesus is in heaven also. Yes, he's preparing a place, but he's also interceding on our behalf As a high priest, Hebrews chapter 7, we read that Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Therefore, he is also to say to the utmost those who come to God through him, since he always lives presently to make what intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who does not need daily to offer up sacrifice. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath appointed the Son who has been perfected forever. You see, the idea presented here is that Jesus, he's preparing a place for us 
so that we can one day hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. But he is also, as a high priest, making intercession. The idea is that Jesus is constantly interceding on behalf of sinners, paving the way by which salvation might be granted on our behalf. That each and every time there is someone who falls to their knees and raises their hands and surrenders themselves to Christ, who desires to be reconciled with God, that as high priest, Jesus is representing that person, saying, look, at the hands and my feet and my brow, that I have paid the price for him or for her, that they should be saved. And Jesus looks at the payment made by Jesus and he looks at the sinner there and he says, paid in full. As high priest, that's why we're saved because Jesus is in heaven interceding on our behalf. But there's a third reason that he's in heaven, that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. In 1 John chapter 2, we read that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This word advocate, it's the Greek word parakletos. It means one who pleads another's cause. Jesus as a high priest is interceding for the sinner, but as our advocate, speaking of the church, our advocate, he's what? He's lobbying on our behalf for grace so that we could be showered with love, for strength, for help in our time of need. He's there for us to cast our cares to him, knowing that he cares for us. He's there to lighten the load, that he is literally, this word, advocate, parakletos, it's translated in other places as helper. It's interesting that in John 16, verse 7, the very verse we read earlier, where Jesus describes the promise of the Holy Spirit, what he uses for the Holy Spirit, he uses the word helper, or literally parakletos. So think about it. As ambassadors, we have a parakletos in heaven an advocate, a helper in heaven, that Jesus is behind the scenes orchestrating things and, and pulling levers and working his will through us, in us. But then we also have another parakletos, another helper, the Holy Spirit, who resides within us and comes upon us. We got all the help in the world. Matter of fact, we've got all the help in heaven. Well, they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. And they all continued with one accord. It was a Honda. <laughs> in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, following the ascension and the directive of the two angels, this multitude, they go back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives to the upper room. History says that they would stay in this upper room, the same place that Jesus had hosted Passover, the same place that they would be residing when the Holy Spirit came down. We're even told that this home was owned by another Mary who was the mother of Mark. 
the gospel writer. There are 120 gathered. Luke doesn't list them all. Tells us specifically that Jesus' closest disciples were present. The remaining 11 apostles, the women, kind of a phrase, you find it all over the place, probably meaning Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Salome. He tells us that Mary, Jesus' mother, was present and his brothers. His brothers were James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon. They were all in attendance. This is the last time that you find mention of Mary, the mother of Christ. And how is she presented to us? How does Scripture leave us, uh, leave her to us? She is just included in a list of disciples who's waiting for what? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mary goes to this upper room in obedience to Jesus' commands. She's chilling out and she's waiting just like everyone else because she too needed the Holy Spirit. She is numbered with the disciples. She is not exalted above them, is she? It's not as though we're told here that they return from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem and they go into this upper room and as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, they spent their time worshiping at the feet of Mary, the mother of Jesus, casting up their prayers, hoping that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would intercede on their behalf. No, she's a disciple. She's a follower of Jesus, waiting for the Holy Spirit. Now, between the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, we're going to find about a week transpires. We're going to leave kind of our, our passage at this juncture, but with one final comment. This word that they were with one accord, it's the Greek compound of two words, meaning to A, rush along, and B, to be in unison, to rush along in unison. And almost every other place that you find this Greek word in Greek literature, aside from Scripture, you will find it used to describe the unique musical result that occurs when different notes are combined together to harmonize in both pitch and tone, that different notes are put together in such a way that they create a chord. Of the 12 times this word is used in the New Testament, there are 10 occasions, so 10 of the 12, when the word is used by Luke in the book of Acts to describe the first century church. That they were many different parts assembled together, different notes combined as one to make a beautiful chord. But the only way you can make a chord is for the notes to harmonize, for they to be in one accord. One scholar says that as the instruments of a great concert under the direction of the concert master, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of the members of Christ's church. We find in Acts a blueprint, don't we? A blueprint for the church. And we should close by mentioning that as a key component is harmony. It's harmony. 